0: Few experiences, at least in the civilized world, are worse than airline screw-ups. Flights that take off hours late if they take off at all. Passengers forced to sleep in cold, noisy airports. But a team of the Transportation Department has managed to get compensation for thousands of passengers. And now they're finalists in this year's Service to America medals program. Senior trial attorney Rob Gorman joins me now. Mr. Gorman, good to have you with us.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: And we should point out that Blaine Werke and Jessica Illich are also your co-named co-conspirators here in the Sammy's Award. (laughs) But uh, you're the one we're speaking with. And what did you actually do here? Because it wasn't clear that the airlines were obligated to pay people if a plane never took off or whatever. And yet, I think it was last year, we had a series of horrible delays that grounded the air traffic system for tens of thousands of people.
1: Right. The SAMI award went to our team, which is the uh, Office of Aviation Consumer Protection within the Department of Transportation. And we're a team of about 20 to 25 lawyers and another 20 to 25 non-attorney analysts who take in complaints from passengers and analyze them and determine whether the airlines have been breaking our consumer protection laws. So We were nominated this year for our work on helping passengers to receive refunds for flights that were canceled or significantly delayed. By airlines, mostly beginning during the pandemic. At that time, airlines were canceling flights at massive rates and not providing refunds to consumers. So, immediately after the pandemic, our office put out a notice saying to airlines and to consumers that it is uh, what's known as an unfair or deceptive practice for airlines to cancel flights and not provide refunds, whether that cancellation was for any reason, including COVID, and that we expected airlines to provide refunds post-haste.
0: Isn't there fine print language in your carriage agreement, if anyone ever reads that? It used to be the Warsaw Convention was printed on the back of paper tickets, but they don't have those anymore, mostly not. So did the law support you? That is, was there enough statutory authority in place that you could demand these refunds?
1: Well, we do have statutory authority from Congress to investigate and prohibit and order airlines to cease and desist from engaging in what are known as unfair and deceptive practices. So what we did in 2020 is to define what unfair and deceptive practices are and we did so by using essentially the same model that the Federal Trade Commission had done with definitions of unfairness and definitions of deceptiveness. And we also said that if we went after airlines or ticket agents for the things that we believed were unfair or deceptive, that we would use those definitions. And so the definition of unfairness, as we set it out in our rule, was that it is a, a practice that imposes substantial harm on consumers, that the harm cannot be easily avoided by the consumer's own self-help, and also that there is no countervailing benefit to consumers because some practices may impose some harm on one side, but there's an overriding benefit to consumers in some other way. And it was relatively easy to explain, I think, that canceling a flight, not providing the service that you promised that you would provide, and most importantly, keeping people's money is unfair Certainly from the passenger's perspective, uh, the passenger has already paid for that flight. The airline did not provide that service, and it's certainly not the consumer's fault. They couldn't avoid that problem because the airlines were the ones who canceled the flight, and there was certainly no other benefit to consumers in doing that. So that was the argument that we made When we had to take a case to uh, an administrative law judge against Air Canada because uh, Air Canada was not settling our enforcement action with them. And shortly after we filed that case, Air Canada came back to the negotiating table and we negotiated an agreement to settle that case for a civil penalty.
0: We're speaking with Rob Gorman. He's a senior trial attorney at the Transportation Department. He, along with Assistant General Counsel Blaine Werke and Director of Consumer Advocacy Jessica Illich, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And just, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems like, yes, it's definitely an unfair trade practice to take money and not render the service. But isn't it also contract law where both sides enter into an agreement when you buy a ticket and there's consideration but no service. Could that have been a route to this? No.
1: And that's simply because no company is allowed to write illegal terms into their contracts. So we would say that that term of a contract, if it was in a contract, would be void and unenforceable because it's effectively
0: illegal. And so how much in refunds were you able to get over and tell us the period of time?
1: Well, since the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020 to roughly today, we have helped to ensure that over $2.5 billion in required refunds were returned to consumers.
0: Wow. And you also got some fines against airlines as well. What was the basis of that and how much came in that way?
1: The fines were imposed as parts of uh, consent orders that we have entered into with attorneys, and we have had a number of enforcement actions uh, against airlines. So we imposed civil penalties thus far of over $15 million and $21 billion in required refunds.
0: And would you say that as a result of this team's action over the COVID period, and then we've had some horrible situations since then, has changed, I don't know, the culture of the way airlines treat passengers? Do you think they're just generally more inclined to say, gosh, we didn't fly anybody anywhere. We have to give them their money back.
1: I certainly think so and certainly hope so, yes.
0: And what's next on the agenda for the team now that you've kind of got that situation licked? I guess there's no shortage of complaints about airlines.
1: There are no shortage of complaints, and the department is working on a number of new rules. We are very proud, by the way, we also have a civil rights section to our office. So we also write and enforce the disability rules for passengers. And we're very proud to say that just recently we issued a final rule that will require wheelchair accessible bathrooms on single aisle aircraft. And that is a game changer, I think, for passengers with disabilities, that they'll be able to have in the future a uh, wheelchair accessible bathroom on large single aisle aircraft. But on the consumer side, we're also working on a number of different rules, a family seating rule, a rule to help to ensure that the fees that airlines are imposing are transparent, Things like seating fees, baggage fees, all of the fees that you see, that they're transparent and easy to understand. We're also clarifying our refund rules. So we have a lot in the works in the near future.
0: Anything you can do about legroom?
1: Legroom tends to be within the FAA's jurisdiction. You know, FAA is, of course, part of the DOT but they tend to handle legroom issues.
0: All right. Rob Gorman is Senior Trial Attorney at the Transportation Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And he, along with Assistant General Counsel Blaine Werke and Director of Consumer Advocacy, Jessica Illich are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
3: especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful.
2: Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus?
3: Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA. At this point in time, we're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including certain activities that we would hope would in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways.
2: This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership?
3: There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins